St. Barnabas. Uh, it is a great pleasure and privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Tom. I am one of the staff workers with the Christian Union. Uh, that is a student club of Christian students that meets at the University of Western Australia. Uh, and we work together on campus week in, week out to try to proclaim Christ to the rest of our university uh, to make him known. I'd like to say thank you so much to you here at St. Barnabas for your kind welcome, uh, the hospitality that you have shown to our team. Uh, It's a great pleasure for us to be here, uh, to partner together in the work of the gospel. Our Bible passage today is Acts chapter 17, so it will be helpful if you have your Bibles open to that passage. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul, has just arrived in the great city of Athens. Athens is the pinnacle of culture in the Western world. It is described as the cradle of Western civilization, and it is the birthplace of democracy. 400 years before the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, there was a particular man who lived and worked there by the name of Socrates. I hope that name will be familiar to many of you. Uh, The great philosopher, Socrates. And he had a student, a guy by the name of Plato, who had another student by the name of Aristotle. Three humongous figures in the history of Western intellectual thinking. Those three figures completely transformed intellectual life in the Western world, and they did it from Athens. Plato and Aristotle in particular started schools, academies for higher learning, which in a way were the very first institutions of higher education in the world. And so they had this enormous influence on the world around them. And for years to come, Athens remained the centre of culture and of education and learning. Thinkers and public speakers, philosophers from all around the world would flock to Athens so that they could get the best education that the world had to offer. Now, by the time Paul arrived, many hundreds of years later, lots had changed. Just like the nation of Israel had been conquered by the Roman Empire, well, the same had happened to the Greeks. And so by this time... Athens was no longer the enormous, thriving city that it had once been. It was now a small university town, population of roughly 25,000 people, which to the ancient world is still fairly large. But its heritage lives on. The schools of philosophy continued to function. The great buildings and temples and statues were still there. And so when Paul arrives in verse 18 we see that he encounters two different schools of philosophy that continue to operate and thrive in that day. They are the Epicureans and the Stoics. You're probably not very familiar with the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, but two major schools of philosophy. And they were rivals, not allies. They would debate and argue with one another. They would debate questions like, what is God like? What is the relationship between God and humans, us mere mortals? They would also debate questions like life after death. Is there a life after death or not? 
Now, the Epicurean philosophers, they were a smaller group, a minority. They believed the gods, they are so, so high, so far above us, that there's no reason for them to be interested in our lowly human affairs. They have this perfect, blissful existence in heaven. They don't need our help. Why should we bother? Why should we bother them? The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that humanity and the gods had a very close relationship, one that can be described almost as like being family. Uh, So later on, the Apostle Paul will quote one of their poets describing humans as the offspring of God. And because of that view, the Stoics had a very big emphasis on religion, devotion to the gods, and they were scandalized by those Epicureans who didn't think the gods were worth bothering with. They accused them of being atheists, even though they did, in fact, believe the gods existed. Then when it came to questions of life after death, the Epicureans, they believed that when you die, your soul dies as well. And so life after death, that is not possible. Whereas the Stoics had a different view. The Stoics believed that the soul is immortal and that physical things like our bodies, well, that's lowly and dirty and yuck. And so when we die, our immortal soul escapes and gets to go off to heaven, leaving this prison, this tomb of a body behind. Now, when Paul arrives in Athens, the Stoics are winning. They are much more popular. Their points of view have had a much bigger influence And they, of course, have a big emphasis on devotion to the gods. They had such a big influence in Athens that Athens was now the most religious city in the world, some would say, perhaps apart from Jerusalem. But certainly in the Gentile world, Athens was the center of religion. This is confirmed for us in other historical sources. There is another uh, historical source an author by the name of Josephus, a Jewish guy who was writing in the first century AD, so very close to the time of these events. He writes that Athens was the most religious of all the Greek cities, exactly as it is described for us in Acts chapter 17. So as Paul sails into the city of Athens, he would have seen giant monuments and statues everywhere, statues of Zeus, the king of the gods, Hera, the wife of Zeus, gods like Aphrodite, the goddess of love, Ares, the god of war, Uh, Poseidon, the guy with the big fork who rules over the oceans and the seas, gods like Apollo, Artemis, and the most important in Athens was the goddess Athena. Athena was the patron goddess of Athens, and that's where the city gets its name. Athens from Athena. She was the patron goddess. And if you go to Athens today, or if you just Google it, as I did, you can see pictures of the great Parthenon temple. That was a temple built in honour of the goddess Athena. I understand that was already there when Paul arrived. So Paul would have been confronted with all these statues, all these idols, all these gods... Now, to the ancient mind, Athens was the pinnacle of knowledge, of education and of understanding, the pinnacle of wisdom and of arts and culture. But above all, it was the pinnacle of religion and devotion. 
they prided themselves on their devotion to the gods and their superior worship. And then one day arrives this poor tent maker, a foreigner. He hops off his boat in the port in Athens. How would you expect a foreigner to react when they arrive in a city like this? How would you react in a city like this? I think I'd go into tourist mode. I'd want to pull out my camera, take photos of all the great statues and buildings. I'd want to go to public lectures and learn some philosophy and just bask in the greatness of Athens. But this foreigner is the Apostle Paul. He has a very different reaction. Paul, of course, is a devoutly Jewish man. Of course, he's a Christian, but with his Jewish heritage. Our reading earlier from Isaiah 44 would have been deeply ingrained in him. This passage about the foolishness of idols. It mocks people who take a piece of wood, chop it in half. On one side, they take the wood and burn it to cook their dinner. And with the other half of the wood, they worship it and say, you are my God. It's supposed to make you laugh at how foolish and how ridiculous this is. And so the Apostle Paul, with that upbringing, that kind of insight, arrives in Athens. He doesn't say, wow, what an amazing city. No, he's cut to the heart and grieved and distressed by the incredible idolatry of the city. See, these extremely wise and religious people of Athens, they are foolish. They are blind. They are living in the most horrific rebellion against the true and living God. And so now the Apostle Paul begins his missionary work to bring the light of the gospel to this city that is in darkness. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if it's not already open, to Acts chapter 17 and follow with me from verses 16 to 18. From verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, as usual, Paul goes into a new city and the first thing he does is go to the synagogue where the Jewish community would gather together and he would share the gospel with them, tell them all your hopes For a Christ to come have been fulfilled. The Christ is here. He is Jesus Christ. But in this passage, we don't see what happens with the Jews very much. They don't get much attention. They get a passing mention in verse 17. And then for the rest of the chapter, we don't hear about them again. The rest of the chapter is all about Paul's encounter with the Greeks, the philosophers and his Gentile audience. Now, this first encounter with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, it's 
it's full of confusion. The philosophers, of course, think that they are very superior. They are the smart ones who know everything. They have all the great education and training. And so they'll look down their nose on this foreign visitor. And they call him a babbler. It's actually a technical term that describes a scavenger, like a bird might pick up little scraps here and there out of the garbage bins. It's like someone who tries to be an intellectual by picking up scraps of knowledge here and there, but really has no idea how it works. They don't have any understanding. It's a term of contempt, and they say this of the Apostle Paul. Clearly, the philosophers think, we are so superior We have all the education and training. This guy, we can't understand what he's talking about. He's clearly not very good. And so the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate his message about Jesus as the king, about a future day when the dead will be raised. But the Greeks, the philosophers, they just did not understand. Concepts like a Jewish Messiah didn't make sense. They're not familiar with that idea. The idea that bodies would be raised from the dead for an afterlife, that makes no sense to Greeks either. That is a new idea. And so after some debate in the marketplace, these philosophers invite Paul to come and speak to the ruling council over the city. It met in the famous Areopagus. Uh, That was the location where Socrates himself used to teach, uh, and very famously, died his death in the Areopagus, a place of great heritage and significance. And so Paul comes to the great Areopagus to share the gospel. And at first, he's received with a very warm welcome. They're not hostile. They simply acknowledge, these ideas you are preaching are very strange to us. Could you please help us to understand them? And it's interesting, the author, Luke, gives us this little side comment. He says that the Athenians and the people who lived there would spend all their time just sitting around and talking about new ideas. I don't think that's supposed to be a very positive comment. Uh, It sounds like they're just playing games. They leave the peasants to go and do all the work, to grow all the crops and to build all the houses, while they just sit around and play games with ideas. But nonetheless... This has presented Paul with an opportunity to present the gospel. But now he stands before Greeks, philosophers. So what should he say? How can he share the gospel in a way that they will understand? It's going to require great flexibility on Paul's part. The flexibility to adapt his message to a different audience at different times. And what Paul goes on to do in this speech is quite unusual for Paul. In all the other sermons that Paul gives, he can assume that people will be familiar with Jewish scriptures, the concept of a Messiah, resurrection from the dead, a day of judgment that is to come. All he really has to do is persuade such people that, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. But with a Gentile audience, there is so much more information that he needs to explain, so much more background he needs to fill them in on. And so he gives a speech that is very carefully crafted to meet his audience where they are at. I wonder if you notice as you read through Paul's speech that nowhere does he mention Jesus by name. 
he never uses the title Christ. He does not quote the Old Testament, and he does not refer to any events in the history of Israel. Those ideas would make no sense to Greek philosophers who have never heard them before. And so instead, Paul addresses them on their own terms, quotes their own poets, their own philosophers, and he addresses the kinds of questions that these philosophers were already asking and arguing over. Remember the questions that they would debate? What is God like? How does he relate to humanity? That's a pretty good question to address to introduce the gospel. Or their question, is there life after death? Again, that's a pretty good question if you want to introduce the gospel. And so we'll see now the answers that Paul gives to those questions. So look with me now to verses 24 and 25, and then after that I'll skip down to verse 29 as well. So firstly from verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Come down now to verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, the people of Athens believe in many gods, and the way they worshipped those gods seems to imply that gods somehow need human service. We need to build them temples so they have somewhere to live. If the gods are going to be happy and in a good mood, then we need to serve them and do good things for them. Because if they're in a bad mood, they will make bad things happen, and we don't want that. Paul makes it very clear. God does not need you. Think about this. If God created the world, why would he need you to create a house for him to live in? If God is the giver of life, the one who provides every good thing, why would he need you to give him good things, to look after his needs? And if human beings are created by God, if we are God's workmanship, then why do you behave as though God was your workmanship by making idols and images and artistic designs to worship as God? See, by worshipping gods in the form of idols and statues, you are worshipping gods of your own creation, gods that you have made. That makes no sense. If you created the god, then logically the god should worship you, not the other way around. So Paul makes clear, no, no, no. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the Lord who rules over heaven and earth. He has created us, therefore he rules us. He owns us. And that is why it is appropriate for us to give our worship and devotion to God. And he is clear, God is self-sufficient. He does not need us. 
It's not as if God has some problems that he can't solve by himself, and so he needs us to help him out. And the people of Athens had fallen into traps like this. Now, of course, there's a small number of Epicurean philosophers. They thought, well, we can just ignore the gods. Uh, Gods have no need for us, so they can nod and agree with Paul at that point. The vast majority of people in Athens who held the Stoic point of view, who felt there was this great need for good and close relationship with the gods, they'd fallen into the trap of building this kind of relationship with God that's a bit like, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Let's help each other out and together we can achieve things that neither of us could achieve on our own. It is completely wrong. There are points of agreement that Paul does share with these philosophers. The fact that God does, in fact, interact with the world. And the Stoics say, yes, we agree. God does care about humanity and what goes on in our day-to-day lives. And the Stoic philosophers can say, yes, we get that, we agree. Paul can say, God expects our worship and devotion. Yes, we should worship God. And the Stoics can say, yes, we agree with that too. And then Paul says, and God is self-sufficient and does not need our service. And all of a sudden, the Stoics feel a bit uncomfortable. They're doing it all wrong. Well, there is a second question the philosophers would debate over. Is there life after death? You might remember the Epicureans say there is no life after death. The soul dies when the body does. And the Stoics believe that the body is like a prison and the soul that's immortal gets to escape and go to heaven. And Paul now says, you're both wrong. Let me tell you how it really works. What Paul preaches is physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. We see this twice in our passage. Firstly, in verse 18, when Paul is in the marketplace talking and debating with whoever will speak to him, we're told in verse 18 that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Again, towards the end of his speech, down in verse 31, Paul speaks about a man who God has raised from the dead. Again, physical, bodily resurrection. So this message that Paul preaches, his gospel, in one way, it is all about life after death. It's not a message about how to make your life work better, how to be more successful, how to be prosperous. It's not even a message about how your soul can escape and go to heaven when you die. That's an idea that we might have heard in Christian circles, but actually comes from Greek philosophy and not from the Bible. Now, the Christian hope is for physical, bodily resurrection on that last day. We will be raised from the dead just like Jesus was raised from the dead. And then with new physical resurrection bodies, we'll live in a physical world that has been completely renewed and restored. And that will be our joyful, eternal existence in the presence of God. But if you're a Greek... This idea of resurrection is utterly ridiculous because in their mind, your physical body is a bad thing. 
So why would you want your body to be raised to live in a physical existence? That sounds undesirable. To the Greek mind, that sounds about as attractive as being a zombie for all of eternity. That's what it would have sounded like to them. And so when they hear Paul speak about the resurrection, they've had enough. They mock and they sneer down in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. How ridiculous. Let me summarize the message that Paul preached. How it would have sounded to the Greeks. You wise and educated people of Athens, you are ignorant. You wise and religious, devoted people of Athens, you are idolaters. Your religion is offensive. It is insulting to God. People of Athens, there will be a resurrection of the dead and you will be held accountable. People of Athens, you must repent. Well, that's all well and good for people in Athens 2,000 years ago. What do we do? For us in Perth, Australians, 21st century, what does Paul's message have for us? Because we have nothing like the people of Athens. We don't worship idols and statues, have temples, and we are certainly not the most religious people in the world. I think in Australia we might be among the least religious in the world. But in many ways, I actually think in our time, in our culture, here in Australia, we are just like the people of Athens in many ways. We, in our culture, we pride ourselves on high levels of education, our wisdom, our knowledge. And we think that we have far better wisdom and insight than those generations who came before us. We believe the myth of progress through time, that is, every generation is better than the generation that comes before it. We think that just because we have electricity and technology and iPhones, that somehow we must be wiser and more moral and more sophisticated than the people of past generations. It's very convenient, you see, especially for young people who want to prove that their parents know nothing. See, we the young ones, we, we, we know far better. We know better than you, mum and dad. You're old news. Our generation is superior. And then every generation thinks that of the generation that comes before. And so we look down our nose on past generations and think, well, we're so much better. It's a myth. And we think that our society has moved on from silly superstitions like religion, spirituality. See, we're above that kind of nonsense. We live in a scientific age. We know better than that now. Some of you are a bit odd. You still believe in God. You're weirdos. But that's okay. We're happy for some people to believe in God because you, know, you just like that kind of thing. That's okay. That's good for you. And so we'll treat religion as like a hobby. 
Now, different people have all kinds of hobbies. Some like sport. I like a bit of cricket. Some people like music. Some people might enjoy arts and drawing. Some people just like movies or video games. Apparently, our senior minister, Stephen, has a special interest in porpoises from a conversation this morning before the sermon. You can ask him about that afterwards. I don't know what that's all about. I wonder if you think of God. Do you think of God as just another hobby? No, whatever makes you happy, whatever floats your boat, if that's what you're interested in, good for you. But it's this optional extra. You can do it if you want, get, get a bit of religion on. But if it's not for you, that's fine. If you're not interested in porpoises, don't worry about it. If you're not interested in God, don't worry about it. It's all just an optional extra. It's just a hobby. God is not an optional extra. God is not a hobby for people who like that kind of thing. No, just like the people of Athens, we need to hear this message from Paul. You wise and educated people of Australia, you are ignorant. You irreligious and apathetic people of Australia, your view of God is offensive and insulting to him. People of Australia, there will be a resurrection of the dead and you will be held accountable. People of Australia, you must repent. Turn back to the true and living God to worship him rightly. It is not an optional extra. If God has created all of us, which he has, then it is the obligation of every man, every woman, every child, in every town and city, in every country, to bow the knee and worship God, to live a life of devotion, living for the honour of the God who created us. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, it's easy for me as an Australian to pick on other Australians, but we're not alone. It's the case in the entire world. I've had the privilege of meeting various leaders of the church in African communities who say the church is a mile wide, but an inch deep. I've lived and worked in a Muslim country where very few people had ever heard about Jesus from a Christian point of view. They had a completely different, wrong-headed idea about who Jesus was. This ignorance about who God is and how to worship him is all over the planet, in every nation, in every country. The world we live in is woefully unprepared. There is a day coming when the dead will be raised and we will be held accountable, we will be judged, and the world we live in is not ready for that day. And that is why the Apostle Paul with his special commission, he devoted his life to bringing the message of the gospel to people living in darkness, to share the truth about God with them. But Paul is now long dead. The world remains in ignorance. And that means a task has now fallen to us. Those of us who are Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have heard the truth about God, 
who know God has revealed to us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a task. It is now our task to make the truth known to the ignorant world around us. It's our task to challenge the wise society around us with our foolish message of Jesus and resurrection of the dead. It is our task to call the world around us to repentance and faith. It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, on the one hand, trying to work out what people already understand, how to explain it in a way that meets them where they are at, it's hard. It requires some flexibility. The Apostle Paul was quite flexible in adapting his message to different people at different times. And I think that's a wonderful example for us, for us to be flexible in the way we communicate our message depending on who we talk to. But I think the biggest hindrance for us is not flexibility. The biggest hindrance for us is embarrassment, fear. We're worried about looking like fools before the people around about us. Members of your family, colleagues at work, they may sneer, they may mock. Resurrection from the dead? What kind of a stupid idea is that? Who believes something so ridiculous? Maybe they look down their noses at you and describe you as an unsophisticated babbler advocating foreign gods. That's how they treated the Apostle Paul as well. As we together as a church, as a Christian community, try to take the gospel to the world, we will feel weak, we will feel vulnerable, we might feel like, I'm not very good at this, and it might be true. But we can take heart because God has promised that he will use weak and ordinary people like us to save people to bring the message of the gospel, the truth, the true wisdom of God to the rest of the world. And he has chosen to use people who appear foolish so that it might shame those who think they are wise. I'd like to close with some other words that the Apostle Paul wrote. The city right next door to Athens was Corinth. They had all the same kinds of troubles and discussions that the people in Athens had. And so I'd like to finish by reading to you these words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, verses, sorry, chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its own wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Please join with me now in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as a church this morning. Father, we thank you for the wonderful example of the Apostle Paul 
and his ability to adapt his message to meet the needs of different people at different times. Father, please help us as a Christian community to work well together as a team, to love one another and to love the world around us. Father, please help us and use us to make the truth of the gospel, the truth about you and the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. Please use us and help us to make this known to the world around us. Father, please give us the humility that we need, that we might be ready to appear as fools in the eyes of the world, to speak a message that may be mocked. Father, please give us courage, give us humility and give us love. And Father, we pray that you would use us to make Christ known. And we pray this in his name. Amen.